listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Contemplative, evocative, colorful. Christopher Chandler is a composer, educator, and a co-founder of the Switch Ensemble. His acoustic and electroacoustic works draw on found sound objects, field recordings, and custom generative software. His music has been performed by leading ensembles and received recognition that includes a BMI Student Composer Award, an ASCAP Seamus Commission, and the Nadia Boulanger Composition Prize from the American Conservatory in Fontainebleau. He serves as Assistant Professor of Music at Union College, where he teaches courses in music, theory, composition, and technology. He lives in Glenville, New York, with his wife and three kids, and enjoys hiking, playing with his kids, and playing chess in his spare time. Chris, welcome to Adjective, one of the newest uh, collective members. Happy to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here and be a part of the group too. Yeah, so we're going to talk about three of your pieces today, and I wanted to start off with um, The View From Here, which you wrote in 2016. Um, So tell me the story of how this piece came to be, because it has a kind of unique origin. Yeah. So, um, 2016 or so, yeah, 2015, um, I had walked out of my comprehensive exams at Eastman, um, and was so sure that I had just failed everything. was feeling very dejected and, (laughs) uh, questioning all of my life choices that had brought me to that point. And I encountered Emlyn Johnson, who's now the director of Music in the American Wild, um, on the sidewalk outside of uh, of Eastman. And we just started up a conversation, and um, she told me about this commissioning project that she was just getting started with, and it sounded really great. And, um, you know, I gave her some thoughts about potential places to reach out to because um, the way that this project worked is that they were envisioning uh, commissioning 10 brand-new pieces of music for an ensemble that they are putting together to celebrate um, the centennial of the national park system. And they wanted to go around to parks a year from that time uh, when I when I encountered her and um, play the music in the parks um, and basically uh, form an ensemble centered around playing music outside and, and go on a pretty um, ambitious tour. So I suggested like Shenandoah and a couple other places that you know might be open to this kind of thing. And some time passed, and she reached out and, you know, asked if I wanted to be a part of this commissioning process. Um, And I was super jazzed about it, so I said yes. Um, And uh, so I wrote the piece um, at the beginning of 2016, and then they took it on tour. They did, like, an East Coast tour and a West Coast tour, um, playing in, I think, Shenandoah. Uh, That was where my piece is is based upon. They did Mount Rainier, some places in North Cascades, um, some places in Tennessee. And along their tour, they also took a video artist who took some incredible footage um, and kind of documented their whole process. Um, And it was just an incredible project to be a part of because, um, you know, it was really the first time that this ensemble had formed. They were all friends, of course, from grad school. But they did such an incredible project and um, brought to life 10 brand new pieces of music as a kind of way to launch their group. It's pretty pretty incredible. 
Yeah, that's awesome. The the ensemble <clears throat> itself is flute, clarinet, horn, percussion, violin, viola, cello. I mean, I'm imagine, you know, since you're you're talking about playing outside, since you're talking about a tour, the percussion has to be pretty minimal for for all the pieces. And obviously, all these pieces can be, uh, or all these instruments can be played outside. You know, you're not like writing yeah. for piano or anything. So was that was that kind of the 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 way the instrumentation formed or was it just like hey you're interested you're interested you're interested let's let's go that's a good question i don't i don't really remember um at least hearing much about why they chose those specific instruments i do know i think they were trying to put together something without piano yeah and i do know that when this um you know project started um they got an nea grant um with Eastman being kind of a partnership um, mm-hmm. for that granting process because I think you have to have a sponsor. And as part of that um, that application, they also, I think, got carbon fiber string instruments um, donated to them. Oh, okay. So they got violin, viola, and cello, uh, these big, black, beautiful carbon fiber string instruments that are, are more appropriate for playing outside yeah. than uh, you know some other nicer... Uh, older instruments. Um, so that was one part of it. And then, yeah, the percussion, um, I really I really thought a lot about that and took that to heart to try to make a minimal setup that would be portable and, um, you know, uh, considerate of all the, all the schlepping that percussionists usually yeah. have to do. <laughs> Especially if you're, like, schlepping it to... You know, uh, like oh, let's let's go down the trail a mile or so to exactly. the performance that, area. That's, that's kind of the way that the the tour ended up is that they had you know some venues around these national parks, traditional venues that they would play in, um, where you know the loadout is essentially grabbing it out of your car. But then they had mm. a couple places like um, um, Shenandoah and Mount Rainier, and in those places, um, yeah, they'd go for a hike for a, a while and and take all of their equipment up there. I think that limited exactly what they what they performed at those locations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, pieces that had a little bit less gear got performed a little more often. So, the recording we're going to hear is obviously inside, but this but you said that this piece, especially at Shenandoah, it it could have been it depending on the park, it could have been inside, outside, whatever. So, did you consider that kind of acoustic uh not necessarily problem, but acoustic uh, condition when you were writing the piece, and and if so, like did that did that change? Uh, d- did it force you to make decisions that you wouldn't normally make if you were in a concert hall or or anything like that? <clears throat> For this piece specifically, I didn't really think too much about that that outside condition. I knew that it would be played outside. Early on, I thought, you know, I should write something that takes advantage of that. But, you know, I also knew that it was going to be recorded for a CD release. Um, so I didn't, I didn't want to compromise too much because I knew that they were going to be making these videos. I knew that they were going to release kind of a CD album or video album. And I wanted the piece to have a little bit life after that project in case it, you know, they, they didn't stick together for too long or, you know, it can mm-hmm. be performed by other groups. Um, but a second piece that I wrote for them 
after the fact, after having such a great experience with this one, a piece called Audubon Sketches, which is a lot longer of a piece intended to be performed outdoors. Um, that one I took a lot more to heart and, and leaned into the kind of field recording, natural field recordings that you get um, by being outside. Yeah. The first movement of this piece, I mean, we, I guess we should uh, say there are three movements and uh, they all have pretty interesting titles. Um, the first is Drones and Swells of the Not Far Road. Second is A Point Off in the Blue Woods. And then Moving Points in the Hooves and Feet of Animals. So let's talk about the first uh, first movement. Um, it's so interesting to me because I, and each one of these has kind of like a uh, parenthetical like, okay, this is where, what I'm really talking about. And you said this was about Shenandoah and you, this first movement is talking about the Skyline Drive. Um, there, are, there are a couple things that work in this movement that I, that I wanted to ask you about. It, seems, it almost seems like there's a chord progression happening that um, the individual voices or the individual instruments have, they're all participating in that, but they're kind of rhythmically untethered. Is that... Exactly. Is that how you were thinking about writing it, or is there something else at work? Or Definitely. Um, and just one note on those uh, titles for each of the movements. Um, when Emlyn did end up approaching me about you know participating in the commissioning process, um, I reached out to a friend of mine, um, Dan Resnick, who teaches um, um, English and poetry at uh, Bowling Green State University. He was my neighbor when uh, I went to school there. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I'd always admired his poetry because it engages with the natural world and themes that seemed appropriate for this project. And he wrote a beautiful poem called mm. Compass. And um, each of the movement's um, titles come from a line of, of compass. Ah, okay. All right. So I, you know, I kind of told him I wanted my piece to be based around Shenandoah. Here are some of the images I was thinking of. And he came back with this in you know, a week or two, and it was just gorgeous. And so... I drew from that, um, you know, three places that um, I found really inspiring having been there before. Skyline Drive, which is kind of in the heart of the park. Um, Big Meadows, um, which is also in the heart of a park, but a really large open space. And then um, Hawksbill, which is the highest point in the park. Mm -hmm. So for this first movement in particular, um, yeah, I was definitely thinking about uh, a kind of underlying chord progression that everybody's contributing to. Um, even though it seems like they're untethered, there's actually, you know, a, a little bit of logic with respect to who's together when. Okay. Um, and it's, it's um, if I had the score in front of me, pretty easy to point out. It's just um, there's pairs of instruments that, that are always together. Sometimes those pairs shift a little bit. There's a kind of rhythmic... Um, Talia that's controlling how and when they come in. Um, and, but the effect that it gives of all the, the instruments dovetailing and um, kind of working together heterophonically creates this sense that it's not not strongly, you know, pulsed. Mm -hmm. It's uh, kind of free and floating. Um, and that's one of the things I, I love about being in that part of the park. Skyline Drive, if you don't know, is, is this know, slow highway through the middle of the park where you see all these beautiful vistas. And, um, you know, one of the ways 
that I interpreted that was um, when you're driving down this highway, you're seeing always the same sorts of scenes, same sorts of landscapes uh, from far away, but from different vantage points. So there's Mm -hmm. kind of a quality of always being the same, but not quite the same. Um, And so, you know, harmonically to this chord progression that's going on um, has a lot of you know, pitch relationships that are invariant. So you keep getting lots of the same tones or same intervals that are returning constantly. And so I think that also contributes to this sense of being together, but also being untethered. So pretty much for, well, a lot of the, a lot of these long tones that you're using, you have these kind of slight glisses at the end. And is that kind of like, are you recalling kind of like a Doppler effect for for cars am i am i reading too much nope, into that or that's that's, that's it? all right it's pretty programmatic in that way yeah it's, okay. it's you know if you're standing there on skyline drive yeah um or if you're standing in big meadows like what sorts of sounds might you hear so i guess you know to, for your earlier question did i did i think about the condition of being outside um i guess from a standpoint of inspiration sonically not necessarily of like incorporating those elements uh too deeply into the music but thinking mm-hmm. like if I were standing on Skyline Drive, what might I hear? Right, right. So there's a okay. little Doppler effect that goes on with those, those glissandi. Yeah. Um, you say that the second movement has uh, fragmented quotes of uh, folk songs. So what folk song? Are, I mean, are you using Shenandoah? Like, as there's the a folk little song? bit of it. Um, a little bit. Okay. There's nothing. Yeah, there's nothing fully quoted in there. Yeah, I, um, I, I, when I read that, I was really like looking out for it, but I, I was thinking like, oh, this is not overt. So maybe, maybe you have these really long tones, and I, I, it almost seemed like in the flute there might have been like how they're getting their tones is, um, is somehow a quote that's been like largely expanded or something. Yeah, it's. I think a more free process than than having something okay. there that is really explicit. I didn't want to necessarily have folk music emanating out of this particular movement, but the idea of you know being in big meadows, um, which is a you know the park is heavily wooded. It's a very protected area, but in the middle there's this very large open space with tall grass. Um, it's a really beautiful place to be, and I was imagining what would it be like to be in the center of that place and hearing music kind of off in the distance, mm. you know, wafting off the wind coming to you. And um, I didn't want it to be a, a sense that you hear something fully, just a little, you know, snippet here and there. So I yeah. think more than anything, like the the kinds of intervals that are there, open fourths and minor thirds and things that you would find in folk music, um, at least found their way in. So I did listen to a bit of folk music and and tried to take, I guess, some melodic contours and aspects of those into that movement. For for this entire, uh, I guess, for the entire piece, you know, you said you were talking about invariance <laughs> in the uh, first movement. You're talking about you know thinking about these open intervals or like you know folk folk music intervals in the second is each movement kind of a different process or do you have anything governing like pitch throughout the entire piece do d- does like 
I guess what I'm asking is, do you kind of have a set way of working or are you just constantly refining your process based on the material you're trying to portray? I, I think more the latter. There's nothing in, there's no grand system in this particular piece that explains everything or, you know, is controlling everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I come up with, you know, sorts of guidelines and rules that, that work to produce passages of music for a period of time. And then when they stop working, I try to find something else that works for a bit of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, whatever, whatever to get the notes out. Um, so yeah, in this case, each movement really has, know, sort of its own internal logic for a okay. bit of time at least. Yeah. I I love how understated this piece is. I mean, it doesn't try to do too much. It just it just is. There's a lot of restraint in this music, I feel like. Is that is that somehow characteristic of what you do of what we would find in your music, or is that kind of specific to this piece? I think the music of mine that I feel strongest about has that quality about it. Mm. So I think it's, it's something that comes out in certain pieces and I, I recognize, Oh, that's an important piece for me because I feel strongly about it. And it has a quality that is shared with other pieces of mine that I also feel strongly about. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't say you'd find it in all music, of mine because I'm trying different things and seeing what, what feels good or how I can grow or try out a new technique or something. Um, but I do feel in, in some of, in some of the works that I feel the best about and the kinds of works that seem to get more performances than others, um, <laughs> tend, tend to have that quality. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, who are we going to hear on this recording? You're going to hear, um, the American wild ensemble. So it, at first they were called Music in the American Wild Ensemble, um, but now it's just the American Wild Ensemble. Music in the American Wild is their kind of initiative for performing music outdoors and, and music inspired by place and space. That's um, that's a great name for an ensemble, by the way, the American yeah. Wild Ensemble. That's yeah. great. Um, uh, so this is The View From Here.
It seems like this is perhaps your most recent work, um, Strata, mm-hmm. uh, from 2021. It was this was the piece on uh, Seamus that I saw, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So uh, before I guess before we talk about that, we should talk about the Switch Ensemble, which sure. you are a co-founder of. So, so how did Switch come about? Why did you Why did you want to form an ensemble? Well, my 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 co-founder and close friend and I, Jason Thorpe Buchanan, um, were walking down the street in Eastman one day after some rehearsal, and we were you know maybe a year into our program there, and we both were talking about how it would be really cool before we left to start an ensemble to you know promote music with technology. Um, the school we went to, the Eastman School of Music, has a computer music studio there, um, but in you know, it was a little underutilized, I think. There were some students interested in it. And so, you know, we wanted to start Switch as something that could do more uh, performances of music with ensemble and electronics while we were at Eastman, mm-hmm. and then hopefully give us a kind of um, launching pad for continuing to make music after we graduated. And it's been just that. We, we formed, I think, in 2012 or 2013, um, most everyone that's in the group now has has been a part of the group since the very beginning. Um, and by most everyone, I think everybody. Um, wow. So it's been just an incredible experience. A lot of learning has happened, but it's been, you know, uh, a group that has learned how to move and transition from being students and graduate students to, uh, you know, professionals and I think it's a testament to the quality of the group, too, that many of our members are also members of other well-esteemed, you know, new music ensembles like Mivos Quartet or Talk Ensemble. And, uh, yeah, it's just been a, a fabulous group to be involved with. Is everyone still kind of located around New York or has or have people scattered? Shortly after we all kind of graduated around 2015, 2014 or so, um, everybody scattered. And that yeah. was a really hard time to do lots of events because, you know, we had people in on the West Coast at UCSD. We had people in Boston and New York, Mizzou. Um, <clears throat> I was in Virginia. But now everybody's coming back. 
Oh. East Coast. Convenient. It doesn't rhyme as well as Best Coast, but East Coast, it's a pretty <laughs> darn good coast. Um, so I think the only person now that is not East Coast based is um, our percussionist, Megan. She's, uh, she's on faculty at uh, Mizzou. And just about everybody else is either in Boston, New York City, or somewhere around there, except for Jason. Jason's okay. in Thailand. So well, that's a that's... little far away. <laughs> so, I mean, what is, what is your primary role in the ensemble other than just composer? Yeah. Um, well, we've all kind of gone through various roles and tried to figure out who can contribute best and in, in what way. Um, you know, at the beginning, I was more of composer, sound engineer, tech person. Um, I still do, you know, a lot of that as well. Um, I did a two-year stint as the executive director between 2017 and 2018. Um, that was basically being in charge of managing the season, pursuing gigs, things like that. Yeah. Um, and now since I got this job here at Union, I took a little step back from that. And I'm more the finance director now, so kind of okay. splitting that part of the executive directorship off. And I work really closely with a you know core group of people in the ensemble that that meet pretty regularly and and uh, kind of manage the group. Yeah. So so this piece Strata it is it works really well for I mean the you know despite the fact that everyone is coming back to the west coast or the the east coast it does work very well for people being scattered um yeah. so can you talk about the process you use to compose this piece because it seems like it may be quite different from a usual working process but maybe not I don't know yeah it is it's it's in a ways in a way very different than before but i think i arrived at a result that's not too far uh, how uh -huh. i would uh, you know, what i would make in, in different circumstances yeah um you know with everybody being distant and separate uh i wanted to make a piece where people were creating sound on their own um that i could you know turn into some sort of virtual ensemble with electronics somehow. Mm -hmm. So I, I asked everybody to, I, I created kind of a, um, you know, a small score prompt where every instrument had a series of things to play and, and try out. Basically creating kind of a large corpus of sounds from each instrument. And then I composed some electronics that are more or less kind of a recorded ensemble of sorts that have had various things done to them that make them sound perhaps a little more electronic-y. And then I gave that, you know, electronic um, output to them and asked the, each musician to improvise individually with that. So everybody's performing on their own in response to something that I made. And then after that point, we had some group improvisation sessions where we got together on Zoom and Sonobus I don't know if you've used that before. It's mm -hmm. pretty pretty nice um, application for sharing high quality audio, much better than Zoom. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we you know used Zoom to see each other. We used Sonobus to monitor each other, and then we made some group improvisation sessions using the same material that was in the electronics. So I was kind of actively playing, um, you know, this electronic instrument I'd made 
that incorporated samples from them. Um, and then after that, I had like way too much sound. <laughs> I, had, I had so much material. Yeah. Um, and it was a process of kind of layering together all their individual stems in response to this one electronic version and then searching through our improvisations for interesting connections and trying to build a final piece out of that. And more and more towards the end, I kept taking away little bits of my electronics that I'd made because I'd found interesting things that they'd done either alone without knowing what the others were doing or um, you know that they had done in response to each other during an improv session. And so we arrived at a kind of you know, composite of different times, different um, situations that they're kind of all set in dialogue with one another. So does this, how does this piece live beyond a telematic performance? Or is this, is it like fixed in, in time? Like have, uh, I, I, you know, I know it's a brand new work, but have you, have you kind of thought about that? Yeah. Yeah. I, when I was writing it, I was like, is this, is this it? Is this the, this is the, this is the work. It's this one, you know, video slash, you know, audio piece. Um, and I, I, that's possibly one world for it. Um, I'm also interested in, in making, uh, a version of it that is, um, that reflects some of these moments that are in the piece. Uh, so kind of, not transcribing exactly what they did, but perhaps taking some of the prompts that I gave them, some of the sonic prompts, creating a score out of it that has those possibilities and that also has possibilities for what they did in, in the performance mm -hmm. so that um, like a version of it could be recreated uh, in live performance. Yeah. Um, I'm, th I'm thinking about it, you know, maybe going on an album at some point and I'm like, how the heck would I do that? I don't want to just use this version of it um i could but it's you know everybody's recording in their own places with their own gear gotta yeah make some compromises so i think it's got a future i just have to uh kind of decide where the work is yeah i mean in terms of the electronics you were talking about like playing an elect almost like playing maybe like a like a sampler or something where you've loaded stuff on and you're, you're playing in real time or, or something like that. I mean, it seems like, it seems to me like there is a huge future for this in terms of live performance, as long as, as long as, uh, you know, you're, you're okay with improvisation being the, the primary driver of how it's going to be. So, you know, it's going to be different every single time, but it, it seems like, that the piece is the the piece is the possibility you know as opposed to a result yeah yeah so i mean i i really dug it on the on the Seamus concert and i you Thanks. know really enjoyed listening to it again yeah you know when so it seems like it was a lot of back and forth with the musicians um were there, I, I'm assuming that means that, you know, there were times where it's like, oh, well, you didn't really give me quite what I was after. Did you kind of like hone in on, you know, the sounds you were getting uh, through process of like, oh, could you do it a little bit more like this? 
or was it kind of a thing where you just give me what you want and I'll make something out of that? More the latter. I mean, the recorded prompts I gave were in many cases pretty specific, Mm -hmm. Um, like certain gestures and techniques, things like that, Um, with certain pitches. um, I gave them like certain pitches with the intent that I could transpose them all to – you know, yeah. if you record everything in minor thirds and a big diminished seventh chord, you can transpose each one of those up and down by a semitone and get a full chromatic scale really yeah. easily. But then I ended up not doing that <laughs> um, and just found the notes that they played really interesting. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, it was more more that they recorded all these prompts. And, you know, in some cases the prompts were like 45 minutes of material, just uh-huh. sounds. And in other cases it was like an hour and a half. And so... At that point, I was like, well, there's a piece in here somewhere. Um, so I didn't spend too much time going back and forth saying, ooh, do this a little differently and whatnot. Um, yeah. It's kind of a challenge, you know, to let go in a certain way. Anytime there's improvisation, you have to let go of, of wanting uh, a particular result um, or wanting a, a certain amount of control. Yeah. And so I guess that was a, a byproduct of this process is just everybody's – fried too you know you don't want to be going back and forth and saying i'll do this a little differently and trying to exert control over the internet seems frustrating (laughs) um i mean one of the one of the really interesting things i find about this piece is that because uh the electronics are based on the original instrumental sounds of the musicians and then when you hear it especially without uh visual feedback the way we're going to hear it on the podcast you know on seamus we saw uh, we saw the video so we could we could connect sound with visual and say, okay, I know that's coming from the cello at this point. But when you when you get rid of the visual, because the electronics are based on instrumental sounds, it actually becomes very difficult to to figure out what is live, what's electronic, you know, what's what's modified, what's not. Because you're also working with sounds that are, you know, uh, sometimes non-traditional, sometimes extended, uh, Mm -hmm. extended sounds from the instruments. So it becomes this, like, the way we're going to hear it, it almost just sounds like a fixed media piece based on instrumental, uh, instrumental sounds. I mean, totally. And that, that ambiguity that's there, that would even be there in a live performance, you know, you <clears throat> like unless you have very, very specific, you know, speaker placement where we oh, well, that's coming from over there as opposed to what's coming from the stage. Like especially if it's like uh, amplified, like the instruments are amplified or something and all sound is coming basically from the speakers, you know, there there's a certain amount of ambiguity that gets in, imbued into the music. And I'm wondering if ambiguity is like a characteristic that you kind of find yourself going for musically? Almost every piece to some degree, yeah. Um, I mean, there's certain certain pieces or sections of pieces that don't interact with that as much, but I, I, I love being in a performance and not quite knowing exactly what's happening. It kind of yeah. sparks curiosity. I want to know more. I find that, to me, inviting. Some people find it, you know, off-putting, um, mm-hmm. but I think that um, that kind of process of having ambiguity allows people to ask questions and yeah. maybe be a little bit more present. 
uh, during the course of the piece. And I think that's a big feature of a lot of my music in general, electroacoustic music and acoustic otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, even in the view from here, there's times when you know, the ensemble is doing things heterophonically, and that's a kind of ambiguity in and of itself, right? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a big feature. I think that's a, gr- that's, that's a really great way to describe the, the intention, is that ambiguity leads to questions, leads to further inquiry, and, and that gets you more involved in the piece. And I totally know what you're talking about with some people, like, they don't appreciate it because they... I I know I I have certain people in mind when I'm saying this that you know if if a piece, if a piece doesn't present itself or or not even just music like a movie or something like that it doesn't present itself to be like very on the nose they're like mm-hmm. well what am I missing you know what yeah. uh like I don't understand it's making me feel stupid and it's like no that's not the point it's like I'm totally with you like in in all art music film whatever mm-hmm. it's like the things that leave me with questions are the things that i keep going back to and the things i keep thinking about too after the fact yeah exactly yeah. it's I, I just like that that interpretive aspect of of not knowing for sure yeah uh who are the musicians from the switch ensemble that we're going to hear on the recording so this is um a recording for Contrabass clarinet uh, featuring Madison Greenstone, violin, which is Lauren Colley, cello, which is TJ Borden, and percussion, which is Megan Arns, all core members of the group. This is Strata.
We've come to the last piece from these old roots for bass drum and fixed media. I really like the way you describe the composition process for this one in your notes. It says, the compositional process becomes a lot like sculpting or pruning an overgrown tree where a hidden structure is gradually uncovered and revealed over time. You know, in, in I, I think in the first piece, that we looked at today that it seemed like that was a pretty common you know uh compositional process you know you sit down with your ideas you find some notes and rhythms and then there's the piece the second piece you know you're it's a very collaborative process between the uh the musicians and yourself and taking material and then you know kind of almost uh like twisting it and mangling it with electronics and then taking this from this session that you did and that from that session and forming this, you know, it's like, um, it's, it's like assembling or an assemblage or yeah. something. And, and the way you're talking about this one is sculpting. Like you're, you, you have this big mass and then you're chipping away, chipping away to find the, the stuff that is, uh, the stuff that you want to make the piece for. And I was wondering like, is, is process is kind of turning process on its head an important aspect for your compositional practice? It has been over the last few years. Um, this piece in particular from these old roots is the first work that I really wrote, wrote with this, um, um, algorithmic and generative uh, sound file manipulating tool. I call it the generative sound file player. Uh, pretty, pretty sexy name, right? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so this is the first uh, you know, piece I really started sketching it out and, and building it um, to some degree of, of uh, functionality. It's you know, gone through tons of iterations and versions now, and it's pretty, it's pretty powerful. Um, so... This piece is really the beginning of that kind of way of thinking of of um, trying to generate lots of stuff, lots of material, and then turn that into a piece rather than you know sitting down with a blank page and working kind of linearly. Um, I had a mentor in graduate school at one point that asked me, um, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but noted that there are certain kinds of composers in the world, some that look inward for inspiration and try to come up with something brand new and are really consciously avoiding what others have done. And then there are other kinds of composers that are always looking outwards, seeing you know, themselves reflected in some kind of artwork and trying to use that as a means for inspiration. Mm -hmm. you know, trying to look outward and take inspiration from something else and to do something different with kind of something that's already been done. And he'd ask me, I think, if which one of those I, I saw myself in. And I think I'm more of that latter half. I'm always looking outwards mm -hmm. and being inspired by certain things and trying to take that and do something new with it or do something 
that feels honest with it for me. Yeah. And I think this process of coming up with lots of material where there's kind of stuff already on the page and then I find interesting connections or I find ways of putting it together that feel um, appropriate for the piece is a, is connected to that pretty closely. Yeah, I'm I'm also I, I would say I'm I'm more so the latter as well. Um, I've always described it as like, you know, I see the I see the world through like composer lenses, you know, so it's like, mm -hmm. oh, well, I'm learning something about science. Oh, I can I see music or I see like musical ideas in that that I can that I can bring in. But also, you know, <laughs> what you're talking about is like kind of developing a library of sounds or a, you know, uh, uh, a, a large group of uh, materials. And then you have all those materials. You go to you go to sit down to work and the blank page isn't so intimidating anymore. Totally. Yeah. So I, I totally. Yeah. And I feel, too, that in some of my earlier pieces where I've been working linearly left to right and trying to manage, you know, duration. <clears throat> I've had the experience where I finally get to hear the piece and I'm like, oh my God, that could have been so much longer. Mm -hmm. I could have done this. I could have stretched out here. And, and only upon hearing it, you know, in front of me at that moment, do I realize, you know, how much potential there is in the material. And working in this way, I find myself, you know, hearing that during the process or being able to engage with that during the process. And, um, and, not get more out of my material, but I think maybe explore it more deeply. Yeah. And also have a, like a better sense of like pacing and proportion. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's always the, um, that pay, I mean, pacing and proportion is just so, so incredibly important. And it's, I feel like as a teacher, it's something that, you know, it's one of the hardest things to teach because yeah, you can teach someone how to like, you know, this is a set and this is how you transpose it or this is this rhythm totally. and this is how you like uh, augment it or diminish it. And, and you can teach all those things, but pacing and proportion, you know, it's it's not a, uh, you know, it's not something that you can just, oh, well, let's add a minor six to it. You know, yeah. like you, it has to be, it, it is very specific to the material and it's very specific to the person. So it's like, it's a constantly a moving target. So it's one of those things that, you know, uh, as I said, is just so difficult to teach, but it's so incredibly important to the, uh, to the end result of the piece, like feeling good, you know, and that's the problem. Like yeah. pacing and proportion is something that you feel. It's not something that you like necessarily think about. Totally. I mean, you, and I, you know, yeah. I'm just going to say it's, just, it's like the gestation time involved for making it work. You know, yeah. oftentimes even myself <laughs> rushing to the deadline to get it work, oh, yeah. <laughs> get, it, yeah. get it done rather, you know, and that reflection that, that comes from taking a step back and seeing it in kind of full form or full first draft form yeah. um, oftentimes isn't there until a second performance or yeah. for an early, a younger composer um, may not be there at all. They just have to learn to do something yeah. uh, differently in the next work. Are the electronics for this multi-channel or is a stereo? 
Just stereo. Just stereo, um, okay. But with the way that this software is, you know, made, it could easily be made into a multi-channel version. Okay. And uh, as I remember, this was a this was at Splice. Yep, right? it's Splice. Yep. Yeah. And wasn't it at Seamus and Seamus the year before, yeah. Okay, this was, yeah, this yeah. was at Splice right before we weren't allowed to travel anymore. <laughs> right, yes. I think I think for a lot of us, Splice was our was our last um yeah. Uh, festival that we all yeah. went to. Yeah, that was a great festival, by the way. Was, yeah, I, yeah, as I as I was listening to it, I was like, I, I've heard this before, you know. So, um, I, just just like the last piece, I think it sometimes becomes difficult to parse what is live and what's electronic, and I find that I find that so interesting. And if I could go out on a limb here, because I know you studied at Bowling Green, that like. Uh, ambiguity between electronics and uh, live instrument. That's one of the aspects I really love about Eleni Lilios's work. I'm wondering if that was a connection that that you made while you were there or, or anything like that. Totally. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, before I'd been at Bowling Green too, I studied at the University of Richmond for my undergrad, and I studied with Benjamin Browning who's still mm. there and yeah. has some f- phenomenal music. And I think that's a part of his, you know, process and outlook on the relationship between acoustic and electronic material as well. And I think both of those people have been influences on me. Um, I, I say too that I didn't make great use of my time with Lilios <laughs> while I was there and studying with her. I think I wrote an acoustic piece my first term with her, or my only term with her. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, just being there, I got to hear a lot of her music and yeah. get to know her as a person and, and whatnot. So came came through osmosis, let's say. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I didn't I, – I, I was a music education major at Bowling Green, so oh, I, I didn't – I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't study with anyone. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I do think, like – when I was there, you know, like I played for her students a lot mm-hmm. and, you know, went to the went to the concerts and heard her music and, and stuff like that. And actually, since I've been, you know, since leaving, I think she's I think she's taught me so much more when I wasn't at Bowling Green. But anyway, for sure. Um, how did the saxophone samples get into this piece? Um, I had a saxophone in my office, uh, just toying around with it, um, testing out various things and, uh, enjoyed the way that they kind of sounded alongside of these, uh, bass drum samples. So it was mainly me just improvising and just liking the sound and trying to incorporate it into the piece. You were, you were getting, what's, what's your primary instrument? Guitar. Okay. You were getting some pretty gnarly, uh, multiphonics there too. Yep. Oh man! All right, <laughs> very multi-talented. Um, so, experience that again. Experience this without the visual brings the question to mind: like, could this piece exist just as a fixed media piece? And if not, why was having a live percussionist important for you? Well, I like the. I guess the the visual impact of having a performer on stage and, um, you know, having a performance that I can watch. Um, again, I think it goes back to that ambiguity question. I mean, to a degree, you have that ambiguity when someone's not there on stage and it's just presented as a fixed media piece. And I have, you know, presented it in concert like that as well. 
Um, but I think at least in the, in the performance where there is a live performer, I take certain samples out. I take certain things away. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you know, sculpting again. The, the, when a live performer is there, they're going to be doing certain things that I don't want in the electronics anymore. Okay. So it's very much, uh, I guess, a result of just wanting to have people on stage and to hear um, kind of different iterations of the same kinds of material, but with a new performer. What is the notation like for this piece? Is it? It's pretty open. It's um, okay. there's kind of a, a layout of of the waveform of the fixed electronic part, just so you can get a sense of amp you know, density and mm-hmm. amplitude, that kind of thing. Um, and then um, there are sort of modules and cells that they can choose from at any given time to participate. And some sometimes it's really restricted, like they only they have to do kind of fingertip tremolos. Mm-hmm. Um, other times they can choose different mallets and can choose ways to inter- interact with the bass drum in a variety of manner. Um. From these old roots, what does the title mean? It goes back to that um, way of thinking about pr- over pruning an overgrown tree. You know, the roots are something mm, that are okay. are giving branches, giving trunks, and um, the material is there. Kind of, its essence is there. Um, the software that I use to make this has certain presets or certain kind of ways for sounds to be um, engaging with one another, mm-hmm. serving sorts of roles. Um, and in a way, it just spits out in multi-channel sound files that I like, and then my task is to go through and kind of peel away different layers, trim yeah. things here and there. So yeah. I think it's reflection on that. Cool. Uh, who are we going to hear on this recording? Um, this is um, Justin Alexander uh, performing... The bass drum part. And this is From These Old Roots.
Okay, so we've come to the last question that I always ask all the composers and artists who are on the podcast. How did you find music as the thing that you wanted to do for your life? Um, it's been there for a long time, um, and my relationship with music has changed. You know, when I first picked up uh, acoustic guitar at age seven. You know, I couldn't make an A chord. My finger wasn't strong enough to play the A the way that my the book had taught me. So mm -hmm. I put it down for a while. And then I picked guitar back up in middle school because it's middle school and everybody's supposed to play guitar in middle school. Duh. Um, and, you know, from that point on, I was pretty serious about, you know, playing rock and jazz. I played in jazz ensembles all throughout school. Um, and when I was in college, I did a summer term at Berkeley and studied, you know, improvisation and jazz there. And I took a class on composition and arranging. And I thought, well, that's cool. I'll see what kinds of classes I can take when I go back to Richmond. Um, cause I was a music major at the time, but a kind of jazz performance music major. Mm -hmm. And I took a composition class there and thought I was going to learn some cool chord progressions and stuff. And, um, definitely, uh, kind of opened my eyes to a totally new way of making music. And uh, Eighth Blackbird was the ensemble in residence at the time while I was a student there, and I got to write a piece of music for them, um, which was kind of a minimalist sort of Steve Reichian groovy piece, and that was super mm -hmm. fun. Um, and then I wrote a, a second piece for them as part of my you know senior recital, and um, very, very different for me, a piece that... I would never have thought I could have composed ever and took me a very long time to write it. And it just was something so outside of myself at the time. And I thought, Oh, this is really cool. This is a neat way of, of making, making art and to hold your score in front of you. Um, and, and say, I, I made this, that was just a really rewarding feeling. And I just got kind of hooked and wanted to do that more. Yeah. Well, uh, before we go, can you tell people where they can find more of your music or connect with you online or anything like that? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty bad at social media, but you know, I'm on Facebook. You can find me on there. Um, best place to find out more about my music is probably my my website, ChristopherChandlerMusic.com, 
and uh, get in touch with me over email, christopher.e.chandler at gmail.com. All right, Chris. Well, thank you so much for doing this and welcome to Adjective. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about Adjective New Music or Lexical Tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.